0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, Season 3, Episode 2, and uh, we have a special guest here for Books and Business today, but uh, let's just open it up. How are you guys doing?
1: Doing great. The school year started. The students are here. It's very busy. Lots of energy on campus. They're having fun and they just received their oh. syllabi today. And oh. I still saw smiles. So that's a good sign. Well, in your
2: classes, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't in Greek.
1: <laughs> I didn't have any classes today.
2: Oh, that's right. Yeah, okay.
1: Seminary doesn't start till Wednesday. We have seminary orientation tomorrow. And then my first class is Wednesday.
2: Oh.
0: Yeah, I didn't do anything with teaching my first My first college class is tomorrow. Oh, that's so first exciting! Ever. It's super fun.
1: I was Mr. Bookstore today.
0: Yeah. And so our our guest, why don't you uh chime in here with your deep buttery voice?
3: Mm. Hello. <laughs> Ooh, buttery <laughs> enough? Yes.
0: So why don't why don't you introduce yourself? I didn't say who you are.
3: So. Uh, Josh Boyd. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna try something a little different this year, this season. Try to get more staff and faculty just to visit us for the books and business portion and uh working our way down the hallways of Domikos and uh we started with the slums of Dr. Josh Boyd's office. So oh.
3: <laughs> throw in shade.
0: <laughs> hey, you know what? Just just trying to trying to get us going here. And by the way, welcome to the podcast. <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: We're
0: so glad you're here. <laughs> um okay, before we get to books and business, uh, we have something else we want to talk about. Last week we created an Instagram account, and hundred and twelve of you have followed us on Instagram, and that's great. We just want to say, if we get to 200, so you have to share this with your friends, share it to your stories or on Facebook, whatever. If we get to 200 follows on Instagram, we're going to do a giveaway. We have some uh, merchandise that we will give away. And the people that we're going to choose from are our followers on Instagram. So once we hit 200, the next day, we're going to be like, okay, randomly select a couple names out of these people. So if you want something from the thinklings podcast a giveaway you got to follow us on instagram
1: What should we go should we give them a mug a shirt give them the choice
0: well so i think we should give them the old lamp that uh, used to sit on the <laughs> table down here <laughs> well, i'm no looking thing. at it it's right over there so this is like it's a janky little lamp that i've had for like 15 years and it was the lamp on our recording
1: table It like wobbles around
0: and then we we upgraded our lighting in the in the studio the dungeon.
3: We're down and to 110 followers. <laughs> no, that is not true.
0: That la- that lamp the- is going to generate so much interest. But probably, probably with the lamp, we should probably give them like a T-shirt. Um, yeah, something. Or else. Uh, and I, I think I don't. We we haven't decided. We have we have some bookstore gift cards and maybe some books and mugs and T-shirts and an awesome lamp. So you just have to you have to follow us and then we'll we'll figure that out as we go. I, I love think.
2: it. You gotta think about the lamp though, like it's memorabilia. The
0: Expectable. lamp works, and if you, are, it is a working lamp. It is a really janky lamp, but it does work. So anyway, if you if go, follow us on Instagram, that's the point of this all.
2: Should we kay. get a picture of the lamp and put it up after the
1: we record this? Yeah, <laughs> <You> <laughs> <Maybe. one laughs> we'll put it we'll put it on the Instagram pictures. story. Like this is the
0: janky lamp we were talking about.
1: Would you like this and throw it away for us? <laughs> Yeah. Well,
0: you know, no, I, it, there could be just like this super fan of the Thinklings podcast. Like, I want that lamp. I want that lamp. So, anyway, enough nonsense on the. Follow us on Instagram. We get to 200. We're going to do a giveaway. So, now we have some real Thinklings business to
1: do. Books and business.
0: Let's talk about some books.
1: All right. So, I've got uh, Let the Little Children Come by Scott Annual. Uh, this book is basically about raising children and how that's a. Um, it's the parents' responsibility, and the church is partnering with the parents to accomplish this, uh, this goal. So uh, there are some movements that are very focused on, hey, the church, they're the experts, okay? They know how to raise our kids, and we're going to let our, our, the church and the pastors um, raise our children and teach them about the Word of God. Uh, that's not the right model. Then there are some other, uh, there's another movement that's like, oh, this is the parents' responsibility. The church is just, you know, here for the ride. Um, And sometimes we just don't even need the church. You know, it's the dad's responsibility. He needs to raise the children and be that leader in the home. Uh, and that's not a biblical model either. And annual goes through biblically, philosophically, theologically, and explains it is the parents' responsibility, in Deuteronomy chapter six, but it's also the church's responsibility. You have the older woman teaching the younger woman um, in Titus chapter two, and so there's both, and the church needs to assist the family in uh, raising their children to um, to believe and to not just uh, no doctrine, but to be able to apply it to their lives and to live, um, live biblically. So uh, he works through a lot of that. It's really been helpful and has given me some good material to think through personally as a father who's trying to raise children um, to the glory of God. He talks about the inclinations of the will, and our goal as parents is not just to impart knowledge, but also giving the children the skills to obey God's word, and to shape their their desires, their affections, and their will, uh, according to the the instruction of uh, and the instruction of God's word, he also gives some very practical tips. And this was uh, kind of a fascinating part of the book. He suggests a morning time, if possible. This probably wouldn't work too well in my home, just because I'm out the door early. Um, but using meal times, which is when we often will will have like family devotions, and he also is. Has emphasized incorporating worship, like even singing, in the family devotion time, which is not something that we've done. And I've even just become convicted, like, hey, you know what, I, I should be more intentional about singing with my children. My, my sons have learned guitar, and so I've talked to a couple of them, and I said, hey, listen, I want you to play the guitar and lead the song for this, for, for family devotions. So it's been helpful for me to think through it. And he even has this thing about coming of age. I thought this was really fascinating. It's basically like a, a Christian bar mitzvah. You know, and and so so much of our culture, it keeps ch- children as children, even when they're 15, 20 years old. Um, but he's like, when when my son turned 13, he, he had this coming of age celebration and basically encouraging his son, hey, listen, you know what? You need to prepare for being an adult, um, emphasizing Christian maturity. So I really liked this book. I'd give it probably like a seven on the Thinklings goodness scale. If you're a parent, I would strongly recommend it and uh, take a proactive approach in the raising of your children. Uh, For me, I'm also the leader in our children's ministry at our church. So Kids for Truth, it's starting up here pretty soon, and it's been a good refresher for me personally.
3: Thanks, Tim. The literary work I'm going to discuss is a little bit older than the one that you discussed. This is an ancient Greek tragedy by Sophocles from the 5th century B.C.
1: The 5th century B.C., That is correct. That's a little older. I think mine came out last month.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Fifth century BC is the golden era of ancient Greek drama. Um, And the play is Antigone. And Sophocles, he wrote something like 120, 123 plays. We only have seven that are extant. And he wrote several plays that deal with the story of Oedipus and the downfall of Oedipus and his family. And we won't go into the details about that, but Antigone is one of Oedipus's children. Uh, Oedipus had two sons, Eteocles, Polynices, and two daughters, Antigone and Ismene. And the, a little bit of background: um, after Oedipus is exiled, and after he passes away, um, rule of Thebes, the city-state is up for grabs, so to speak. And Eteocles and Polynices struggle with one another and there's a fi- civil war that breaks out and as fate would have it and I use that in the greek sense Ateocles and Polynices end up killing each other in this war and so Creon their uncle takes over and because Polynices was on the wrong side of the battle because he warred against Thebes Creon at the beginning of this play has passed an edict that says no one should bury the body of Polynices And Antigone, as Polynices' sister, understandably wants to bury the body of her brother. And so, even as the play is beginning, we already have this conflict set in place. Are you going to obey, are you going to serve the city state, the polis, or are you going to do the proper duties to your family? And as the play goes forward that's the debate that takes place but it actually goes even beyond that to another level and i want to read a passage of maybe 10 or 15 lines and i want you guys to think about if this sounds like any biblical passages that you might know of so creon says to antigone and you still had the gall to break this law she's decided she's not going to obey her uncle's edict and she's going to die for that that's the penalty is death she says in response to him, of course I did. It wasn't Zeus, not in the least, who made this proclamation, not to me. Nor did that justice dwelling with the gods beneath the earth ordain such laws for men. Nor did I think your edict had such force that you, a mere mortal, could override the gods, the great unwritten, unshakable traditions. They are alive, not just today or yesterday. They, she's speaking of the unwritten, unshakable laws and traditions, they are alive they live forever for the first of time, and no one knows when they first saw the light. These laws, I was not about to break them, not out of fear of some man's wounded pride and face the retribution of the gods. And so the tension begins with am I going to serve the city state or am I going to serve my family? And it rises to another level. And did that remind you of any biblical passages?
2: Yeah. In Acts, when the disciples say we have to obey God rather than man.
3: That's right. Yeah. Acts five. And of course, Sophocles is a pagan and he's writing long before the first century. He's writing, as we said a moment ago, fifth century BC. But that same idea that we owe allegiance to a higher law than to man's laws when man's laws are telling us to do something that goes against God's law. It's a fabulous play. It's one of the great books of the Western world. On the Thinkling's goodness scale—is that what this is called? That is—that's what it it's is called. exactly what it is called. The premier book ranking system. Yes, I would the say number would,
0: one book ranking system in the world. Kind of in right,
2: fact,
3: <laughs> I would say I would give it a nine, and I would encourage families who homeschool uh, their children, especially, to assign this for your upper-level high school-age children. It's a very fruitful discussion about um, ethics, serving. God rather than man. It's a fab, fabulous play. And it's not as cut and dried as I've presented it as well. There are certain things about Antigone that call into question some of her motivations as well. So it's it's very interesting. Oh, go
1: ahead. Oh, no, I just thought it was, it's just kind of interesting how even a secular world, you know, I mean, you know, Greek from the 5th century BC um, recognized, you know, that that biblical theological premise that there's a higher authority than a mere man. And the concept of fear and the fear of the Lord, and she said the fear of god's or I think she mentioned fear specifically in that uh, quote um, and how we need to fear God uh, rather than men is just that that concept It's just kind of interesting how even the uh, world the world would recognize that truth. I think it's interesting
2: that today, especially with the last couple of years, that question of what Law, do you obey? Is there a higher law? Is there a different law? Like that whole question and that whole discussion, I think that we think those are questions for our times. But I think often when you find a question for our time, it's actually been a question for all time. And I think this is like a good illustration that we're talking about the same things. That's really intriguing. Well, for my book today, I'm going to finish uh, William Barclay's The Secret of Contentment. I'm going to give you a quote. And then I'm going to rank the book and give you my recommendation. And I would strongly recommend this book. So later in the book where he's concluding his his whole uh, discussion, he leads off a chapter with a quote by Blaise Pascal, who I enjoy a good dose of Blaise Pascal. Let me tell you, uh, he's intriguing. We'll talk about him another time though. But he says this, Blaise Pascal wrote, Happiness can be found neither in ourselves nor in external things, but in God and in ourselves as united to him. Barclay goes on to say, This is a succinct summation of biblical contentment. Human beings were created with a soul thirst for God, but nothing but God can satisfy that thirst. Later on, he gives this illustration of traveling, and I thought it really captured well some of the thoughts I'd had as I'm studying through this topic. And I think if you study the topic of contentment, you might come to these same conclusions. Barkley says when we are in a foreign land we expect that we will be without many of the creature comforts of home. I recently spent two weeks teaching in Ukraine living in sparse conditions quite unlike what I normally experience. I was in a very small room with a bathroom barely big enough to turn around in. My bed was uncomfortable. The food was dot 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 different. I often took cold showers. I encountered those whose ways and manners were quite unlike the genteel culture of the American South that I'd come to know and love. I could have complained and on occasion inwardly did so, but I simply adjusted my expectations to life in new surroundings as a stranger there. In the same way, the Christian needs to recognize that he is a pilgrim and stranger in the world. We need to adjust our expectations and learn to live without expecting our desires to be met. We will never know contentment until we develop this mindset. And I think that you need to learn a lot about contentment. You need to study what the scriptures say. But at the end of the day, I do think there's an element of your attitude that needs to be adjusted. So I really like this book, and I would put it at an 8 on the Thinkling's Goodness scale. I think I'm glad I read it. I think you should read it, and I think this is worth buying and putting on your shelf and reading it again.
0: Okay, for my book, it is called The Princess and the Goblin by George MacDonald, and George MacDonald is a Scottish pastor, reformed pastor. uh, The reason I emphasize that is earlier I had mentioned I thought he was German, and he's definitely not, and Dr. Boyd corrected me, so that was good. Um, And uh, yeah, jump on in if you're going to say something.
1: That's right. Oh, okay. Happy to help.
0: I thought he was going to correct me back the other way. I thought he was going to be like, no, he is German, but okay. The
2: look on his face was like he's going to throw more shade. Princess and the
1: Goblin. So that's kind of funny. This book that I was reading, Let the Little Children Come, he recommended reading to your children Chronicles of Narnia, Hobbit, Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Princess and the Goblin, Little Pilgrim's Progress, Anne of Green Gables, and Little Woman. I haven't read those two. Yeah,
0: so The Princess and the Goblin is a children's fantasy book written by George MacDonald, and George MacDonald was a favorite author of C.S. Lewis. Uh, There's debate as to whether or not this list is authoritative or not, but when Lewis was prompted, what are your favorite books? He listed a George MacDonald title, number one, Fantasties, and uh, also a fantasy book that we've talked about on the podcast before. But what's great about this book is it's going to teach and train virtue through the story, like, what is a true princess? Is a princess someone who is born a princess, or someone that acts like a princess? Are some some ideas that are going to come out? Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a really good book. Uh, I would give it like a six, and just by virtue of comparing it to other fantasy literature, I wouldn't rank it. I wouldn't rank it as captivating as like a like a Lord of the Rings or even a C.S. Lewis like um, Chronicles of Narnia book. But it's in that vein, and uh, you can see why guys like Lewis and Tolkien liked McDonald. And you can see they, they actually worked from each other. And I know I've mentioned this before. And it's somewhere in the collected letters of C.S. Lewis where he's writing. I think he's writing to Arthur Greaves, and he's, he's writing, Lewis is writing, and he's kind of conflicted about whether or not he can take this idea about, like, talking trees. Ents from McDonald and they're, they're not ints to Lewis but they're that same thing and and Lewis kind of just quips like he doesn't have a copyright on uh, I think he calls them druids um but it's it's kind of funny if you find that in the letters of C.S. Lewis somewhere um but yeah so i give it a 6 parents it's it's a great book for your kids to read so any other thoughts before we jump into the uh the
2: main part of the content I'll just say that I think it's really intriguing how authors can teach virtues but they do it implicitly through story. I just, I'm fascinated. So like you brought up the, I'm going to get this wrong again. No, the Chronicles of Purdane. Yep. And something you mentioned about that is that it teaches virtues. And we were talking earlier, you'd said the same thing with the princess and the goblin. And then I think like, as we've all read Narnia, there's, there's bits of that, but I'm, I'm working through the green ember right now. And it's just, it's the same thing. It's, I think it's fascinating the way stories can teach.
1: That's all mm-hmm. I wanna... Yeah. You it know
0: is. what? I'm, I'm going to give a throwback to last week's episode too. And I think, because you can, you can teach virtue, but it doesn't necessarily... I mean, th- this is opening a can of worms. It doesn't necessarily have to be Christian virtue in the sense that the person teaching it could be teaching you good morals, but they're not doing it to get you to do Christian things. But when a book does it in a very distinctly Christian way, I think it's even more helpful, mm-hmm. which is why yep. the Wing Feather Saga, Ooh. I think, is really good because th- there are themes there that you can't miss that I think are distinctly Christian.
2: So this is probably an opening of can that we need to actually close one time. <laughs> it would be interesting <laughs> in an episode to pick this topic up and talk about like what are the themes you see in Wingfeather and like how that that would be fascinating. Okay, I would
0: love to do that, Andy, but, oh, but there are things them. I can't say because they'll give them. things away to you. Sorry, I'll get them read. Doctor, Josh, have you read Wingfeather? I have not read the Wingfeather saga, him. but I,
2: we do we have it. <laughs>
0: It is. It's in the wrong era for Doctor Boy.
2: My oldest child has read it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Josh is like, if it's more than a thousand years new, I'm not
1: right. it. Yeah, it was. You
0: know, Middle Ages on is too new. you have got to get back their ways.
1: Horrendous. Okay,
0: so with that, we'll we'll turn you loose on the main content, which is Tim talking about seraphim. You gonna make any comments about seraphim? And I just want to
2: say that I think this episode is on fire. horrendous
1: you'll get it it when you listen (laughs) let's have a conversation about angels and uh, today we're going to look at seraphim the seraphim are most prominent in isaiah chapter 6 the bible project they've produced a lot of really helpful videos and they have one about angels and demons and the unseen realm I believe they've um, built off of Michael Heiser's books. He has um, produced a a little bit of a series on the Unseen Realm. The one title is The Unseen Realm. I think that's his main book. He also has an Angel's book and a Demon's book. Uh, A Supernatural is another title that he's written. His writing is very sensational, and I disagree with his exegesis on multiple points, including the identity or the maybe the, the essence of the seraphim and what they are. Historically, the seraphim have been understood to be uh, beings, the angels, angelic beings that are on fire. Uh, when I say on fire, I mean like literally lit up on fire. And the reason for that is because the root word there is seraph. The word seraphim is really just a, a transliteration of the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word seraphim is pronounced seraphim, seraphim, seraphim. It's the exact same word. So the the seraphim is a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word seraph means to burn. Um, We see that several times throughout the Old Testament scripture. In Isaiah chapter 1, Uh, We have the children of Israel, and they are living in rebellion against the Lord. And the uh, country, in Isaiah one seven, the country is desolate. Your cities are seraphed with fire. Okay, it's their cities are burned with fire. And the word means to burn. I remember working through this with some um, of the... uh, children in our youth group. It was several years ago. It wasn't youth group. It was like the fifth and sixth graders. And we had a visitor from Israel at the time. And, um, I, I just asked her, so how do you say like, something's on fire? And she's like, yes, Rof? Like, why are you asking me this really weird question? (laughs) And of course my point was, I wanted to see if she would say the roots are And, and there's a few different ways to say burn or on fire in Hebrew, but fortunately it worked great for my illustration. <laughs> she had the, the, the root there, seraph. And so seraph, it means to burn. That's what it means. And so these angelic beings have historically been understood to be uh, burning you know, beings that are literally on fire. However, there's become a, a, a pretty popular view that they're not uh, literally on fire. Actually, they're, the, the view is that they are actual snakes like these winged serpents, and this is built off of some Egyptian uh, studies and a uh, study of the root seraph. So if you do a search in the Hebrew Bible, if you can grab Strong's Concordance, you can study out this word seraph, and you'll find several places where the, the seraphim are snakes. For example, in Numbers 21 and verse 6, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. So this is one of the rebellions of Israel, and the Lord, you know, this is the, you know, Moses had to make a serpent up on a pole and stick it up, stick it up and then the people would be healed. It's that whole story. Well, there are fiery serpents. What's the word there? Well, it's seraphim. They're snakes, and they're fiery snakes. Or does seraphim just mean snakes? We see it used that way also in Numbers twenty-one verse eight, Deuteronomy eight fifteen, in Isaiah fourteen twenty-nine. We have uh, the offspring will be a flying fiery serpent, is how the New King James translates it in uh, Isaiah fourteen twenty-nine. But uh, what's the meaning of this seraphim? Is it really fiery, or is it just that it's a snake? In fact, the Net the Net Bible in Isaiah fourteen twenty-nine, they don't translate seraphim as fiery at all. They translate it as a darting adder. The adder is a kind of a snake. Darting is that it's like flying. It's not literally flying. It's just that it's like really fast. So the Net Bible translates Isaiah 14, 29. The seraphim there is just an adder, a poisonous snake. So what some have said, oh, look, the seraphim, they're not burning ones. They are... Snakes. They're snakes. Hmm. And this... Position has now become more popular because the Bible project has actually taken that same interpretation, and Michael Heiser is a pretty sensational author. He writes in a very uh, sensational way. I don't like his writing at all, and I think a lot of times his argumentation is poor, but the way he writes, he mocks and belittles his theological opponent. so obviously, when I disagree with him, he's mocking and belittling
3: me It's, it's like
1: us on the podcast with you. <laughs>
0: So when you say sensational, you're not saying, wow, this is really good. You're saying sensational in the sense of the way he
2: approaches his argumentation. Like heavy rhetoric. He's winning points by rhetoric, not by logic.
1: Exactly. He's winning points by rhetoric, not by logic. I should have had an illustration. I was just reading some of him yesterday, and um, he was doing it like right away at the beginning. And I was just like, really, buddy? So yeah, you can scan through that book. I've got the Unseen Realm here in front of me, and maybe Andy can find a spot. But um, anyway, so back to the conversation. Is it snakes or are they, you know, these angelic beings? Are they like literally lit up on fire? What are these seraphim? And I'm going to argue that they are human, okay? They av- evidently have some characteristics of human, of humanness, all right? And what are some of those characteristics? Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, it states in, in verse 2, above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, okay? So if you can envision these seraphim, whether they're snakes or they're human, they have six wings. With two, he covered his panim, face, okay? So if it's a snake, it's covering the snake's face, and the word there is a face, like as in a human face, okay? With two, he covered his feet, Uh Okay, so what kind of a snake do we have that has a feet? The weird kind. Dragons. Or the pre-fall kind. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's what some might argue. Okay, that's a good point. So it's not totally ridiculous, Mm -hmm. but it's got feet. And then- So it's uh, not a dragon. With two, he flew. I'm going to keep going. So, (laughs) It's got six wings, and envision this. is covering his face, covering his feet, and then it's got two wings. It's flying. But then later on in the text, what does the seraphim do? Um, the one of the seraphim, let's see here, verse six breathes
0: fire <laughs> out of its mouth <laughs>
1: <laughs> and lights the incense up on the altar. Horrendous. <laughs> verse that six. sounds
0: like good exegesis to me.
1: Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his wow. hands. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so the seraphim, if they are snake creatures, well, they have hands, they have feet, they have six wings, and they have a face. And so I would contend that that is quite unlikely not a snake. It sounds like a human um, person, okay, with six wings, with hands and a feet, and he seems to be a divine messenger um, uh, associated with the court of the Lord in the Lord's uh, throne room. And here, this seraphim is functioning uh, as God's emissary to Isaiah in this vision. And that seems to be the more logical explanation, in my opinion. So I, d- I disagree with the Bible Project and their understanding of uh, the seraphim and Michael Heiser's understanding of the seraphim and that they're snakish. And by the way, I'm not just. Uh, I'm not just. Uh, Uh, it's not just a popular level, okay? This view originated with some of the more advanced lexicons. And so even within some of the deeper research, there are many people that believe that these are snakes. So anyway, I don't think so. I think the seraphim are physical human beings and they are literally lit up on fire Be an absolutely astounding picture that Isaiah would have seen uh, in this vision. Okay. (sighs) Okay, so the seraphim are lit-up creatures, and the seraphim have some interesting correspondences with some of the other angelic beings. Now, I don't want to get into the cherubim today. I'm going to save that for a later episode. Um, But there are similarities, and some believe that the seraphim and the cherubim are just different names for the same beings. I don't think that's the case, but there are some correspondences. And as I uh, close things out here, I want to just highlight another aspect of the throne room of God and these angelic beings, and that is the concept of fire and this would also argue that the seraphim are not snakes, but that they're fire, because fire is closely associated with the throne room of God. In fact, the cherubim themselves in Ezekiel chapter one and verse thirteen, they have the appearance of burning coals of fire, all right so because the cherubim also have these this fiery look, some believe that the cherubs are um, seraphs. And I disagree with that, but I'm going to say that for another time. Furthermore, in Daniel 7.10, there's this fiery stream coming from the throne of God. So fire is something that's um, consistent within this throne room of God, and even God himself, and his appearance, and even in Jesus, when he is described in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fire is a major component. So um, why is it that we have snake? The snake idea, I think, is coming from the effect of of the snake. When a snake bites, what does it do? Oh, yeah, it burns or it, poisons. It, it burns, stings. It stings. Hmm? Okay? And so that's probably the point of comparison and why the, hmm. the snake is called a saraf. The root is to burn, and, oh. and it's, a, it's a metonymy of effect. The effect is the burning, and that's why you have a snake um, uh, being a fiery one because of what it does. It puts fire into you. So what do you guys think of that?
2: Well, it's interesting that snakes and burning comes up. At, I know this is like anachronistic as in like it's not back then, but did you, when you were young, did any of your friends come up and give you a snake bite where they like put both hands uh-huh. right next to each other and then they wriggle, like wriggle them back and forth and and it burns. And so that's really, right. cool. I doubt that's probably why they thought that, but it's just,
1: that's intriguing. Yeah, it's an interesting point of correspondence even with Today. Junior, junior high boys. I know. <laughs>
2: Well, I would say the only other thought I had is um, I like the Bible Project. There's a lot of really good videos. Yeah, yeah, I do too yeah. actually. They've done some really good stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been good. So I I think it's good to be a Berean though, so I appreciate your checking in according to the scriptures. So I think that's good to yeah, think. Yeah, and about. I'm
0: not I'm not super familiar with the Bible Project. I don't think I've, I've I've maybe interacted with a little bit of their material. And uh but yeah, we're we're not anti Bible project, anti-study, you know, we, we just want to, one of my professors in seminary said it this way, if you're going to teach the Bible, you never have the right to be wrong. And, and so you, we're, we're doing our due diligence. Any, any video you watch, we're talking about the Bible, regardless of how good the video is, like how popular the speaker is, how it makes you feel, you should always be able to objectively say, "Is this true or not?" And it has nothing to do with the the appeal of the, the presentation. But that's actually what I want. I want to. I've heard of Michael Heiser, and he was brought up to me. I was actually just playing board games with some of my buddies, and someone said, "Hey, have you heard about this?" And I was like, "No." <laughs> and so, uh, but I'm now very generally familiar with his his kind of his vernacular. In his area of expertise, like, Tim, you've done much more reading in, in Heiser and interacting with him, like at a popular level, what, what does someone need to be aware of when they approach Heiser? Like what, what should they be looking at or for in his books?
1: Yeah. Um, so my interaction with Heiser was first for my dissertation because he's talking about supernatural beings and angels. So Satan and Isaiah 14, Uh, Obviously, I wanted to see what he had to say on on, uh, who Satan is in Isaiah 14, and of course, you know, he follows the line of most people and believe that Isaiah 14, 12 through 14 is a reference to Satan, uh, which is what I was arguing against in my dissertation. But um, one of the things to look for with a writer, like like I use the word sensational, I was just flipping through the book, I'm just going to read a little snippet here, um, where I, I kind of, it shows how he's writing sensationally, and, um, and that might be something to look for. Um, when, you're, when you're making an argument, you want the evidence to um, convince people. You don't want your rhetoric or the way you are speaking to convince people. Now, he's working through this section here in Psalm 89, and I actually agree with his exegesis. I think he's right, but... Um, the way he writes, it's not the argument that's proving it. Well, yeah, it, it, he, the way he writes is, is, his rhetoric is is part of his evidence. So let's, I'll just read it. God's divine counsel is an assembly in the heavens, not on earth. And he's talking about the throne room of God and how God has other beings uh, in his presence. The language is unmistakable. And that word unmistakable, Okay. This is precisely what we'd expect if we understood the Elohim, the gods, to be divine beings. It is utter nonsense if we think of them as humans. Now, let me read through that again. It is utter nonsense if we think of them as humans, okay? So, in other words, if you disagree with him, then you're believing in nonsense, utter nonsense, okay? There is no reference in Scripture to a council of human beings serving Yahweh in the skies, Jews, or otherwise, And so, I mean, I'm just grabbing a random spot, but um, the wording that's used is is um, rhetorical, and so it's not the evidence that's convincing; it's how you're writing that's convincing. And he's very sensational. And this would be a mild case of what he does in the book.
2: I would just say that um, if you, so I've said this before in class, when I, if you're going to present the gospel, I want the gospel to be what offends you not me and so uh, part of your speech can actually detract from your message in a bad way but that also shows you that speech sometimes can affect your message in a good way but if you win over a person through rhetoric someone else with better rhetoric can take them away and so you if you if you do that there's a multiple problems number 1 you're not making the case uh, on the ideas themselves is how you present it but number two if you do that regularly with people guess what you're training them to follow rhetoric you're training them to be persuaded by rhetoric and slickness and good presentations i think that's a dangerous
1: move as a christian i got another quote i just want to read here so this is how he begins chapter four there's no doubt that psalm 82 can rock your biblical worldview boom so i mean that's just kind of informal all right but now he has kind of like a deconversion story once I saw what I was actually once I saw what it was actually saying, I was convinced that I needed to look at the Bible through ancient eyes, not my traditions. I had to navigate the questions that are probably floating around in your own head and heart right now that you've read, really read that passage. Okay, so like he, you weren't reading it before. Yeah, like you never, like you're just assuming everything from your fathers or whoever, okay? So it's like this deconversion story. You say, oh yeah, I used to be in your shoes, and I used to just believe everything that I was told, but then when I actually really studied the Bible, then it really became apparent what's really going on here. And that's just sensational writing. I absolutely hate that kind of thing. If I ever write that way, then call me out on it.
2: It's like he's poisoning the well. Like, his opponent's not really doing a good job. He's not actually right. even trying, and I'm actually doing it. So. Right. Uh, that's too bad.
0: Yeah, and, and just w- before we get to the end of the podcast here, I, I, there is a kernel of truth in what he said, though. Like, we we need to see, the especially the Old Testament, but all of the Bible, we need to see it in its own world first. But if I take the question that I have, which is filtered through presuppositions of our modern culture, and I take that back with me to interpret the ancient world, it will lead me astray. So, like, uh, you you can't, as a modern or even a pre-modern, like, 2021 person, you you really can't <laughs> go back with your presuppositions and truly see it from the way they saw it. Like, you, you can, and we study for that purpose, but... Anyway, you want to jump in on that?
1: No, I think they're right. It's just for me, the way that he's writing—that's what I'm really responding to. Charlie's right. We need to be looking at the scriptures. The scriptures are the authority, but the way he writes it, yeah, I just, I just don't like that.
2: I think it's grace. He's not writing graciously at no, times. No, he's and, not. And I am yes. guilty of this too. When I'm really confident in something, I tend to get bombastic, and I need to be gracious. So, and I would, I would critique his,
0: yeah. his last yeah. statement there. We need to read with ancient eyes, and I would say no. You need to read for ancient I, like, and the reason, like, you're not trying to be an Old Testament person. The way that you get the passage correctly is you figure out what the author meant. Amen. That, like that, if you can do that, you, you'll nail it. And then you, you see it in that context as the author meant, and then you bring it back to our world. But so like, it's not think like an Old Testament person. It's what did the Old Testament author mean? And I just, it's a slight pivot, but anyway, so here's our final thought from the word. And it does line up with what we were talking about. We're in first Corinthians chapter one. And let me read some verses here. This is chapter one, verse 10, and we'll read through verse 19. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none, no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Parenthesis, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. In parenthesis, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god for it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning i will thwart okay so i have two ideas that i want to bring out from this passage and and the first one is short and the second one will be a little bit longer the first one is what, what's implicit here is that we don't want to argue about silly little things And we want to be careful even as we critique maybe uh, an author and his thoughts on, on what is admittedly a side issue. Angelology is not the core of the Christian faith. It is important to rightly divide the word, but we don't want to be, you know, too argumentative about a thing like that. So we want to be careful about that. And Paul is hitting on that here that in the church in Corinth, there was division over things that didn't really matter. Like, well, I was baptized by this guy and I was baptized by that guy. And he's like, I'm so glad I didn't baptize many of you because that's not the issue. Christ is not divided. If we're all born again, we all have the same gospel, the same faith that unites us. And we should major on that major. So that's number one. But number two, you can see here at the end of that passage how it intersects what we've already talked about with rhetoric. We want to be careful that when we talk about the Bible and we try to preach the truth within the body and when we evangelize outside of the body, that the the attempt we're making is not to win them with the persuasive rhetoric or argument. Because guess what? The gospel is folly to all who do not believe. It doesn't matter how well you present that argument that will save someone. It's, it's not your rhetoric. I think Annie made a great point that if it's your rhetoric that convinces someone, then someone with better rhetoric could convince them out of what you told them. And this, and this simply comes to this, is that the gospel is a message that is believed. It is, you're placing faith in the object, which is a person, who has promised something to you based on his power and his work. And I, as someone who's preaching the gospel, needs to focus on him. Verse 17 again. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, which is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm not preaching that with words of eloquent wisdom. Why? So that the cross is not emptied of its power. The power of the message is in the person who's done the work. Hey, Jesus died for you. And people might think you're the dumbest person that's ever walked on this earth, but that truth is true. And you preach it alone. And you ask them, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus died for you and rose again and is offering you eternal life? And and if you do, you want that. And you turn to him and put faith in the promise he's made, he will save you. And you know what? That's not... That that's not an eloquent argument, but it's what's true. And the power is in the truth of the gospel plus nothing. And so just we won, you know, and we talk about thinking and we, we read good books and we talk about good books all the time. And we're not saying not to do that, but just remember, the power of the gospel is not in our high thoughts or our high rhetoric. It's in the fact that it's true because Jesus is true and he has died for us and rose again.